0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh,
2: oh, oh, O'Reilly Auto Parts.
3: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast
0: Network.
4: Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 32. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're talking about anthropology of the U.S. Mexico border. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute Treaty lands, the Donata, and the ancestral Puebloan homeland. Okay, so on today's episode, we have Jason De Leon. Dr. Jason De Leon is a professor of anthropology and Chicana Chicano studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, with a lab in the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology. He is the executive director of the 501c3, Undocumented Migration Project, Incorporated. He is the author of the award-winning book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. He's also the president of the board of directors for the Colibri Center for Human Rights and on the academic board for the Institute of Field Research. Prior to joining the faculty at UCLA, Jason taught at the University of Michigan and the University of Washington. He received his PhD in anthropology from Penn State University in 2008 and earned a bachelor's degree in anthropology at UCLA in 2001. In addition to his scholarly pursuits, Jason is an active musician. So welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. So I actually went to one of your talks years ago. I can't remember if it was at the, the University of Arizona or Northern Arizona University. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Well, my husband also, he, he also remembers going to one of your talks and we couldn't remember if it was because we both went when we were at NAU or if he went up at, he went to school at Western Michigan. So we were, we were trying to figure that out the other I've night. I've given talks in but, both those um, places. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, ever since then, I just, I, I remember at the moment just really being like, yes, this is what, um, this is what anthropology should be. So ever since I started this podcast, I, I was definitely wanting to reach out to you and have you come on the show. And and then you won your your MacArthur grant. And I was like, oh shoot! Now he's going to be <laughs> too busy to come on on a little podcast. So I'm really excited to have you. And um, to get us started, do you want to to start by talking about what got you into this field?
2: Sure. Well, number one, thank you for for having me. I mean, I'm I'm always appreciative of anyone that wants to to learn about the work or listen to me ramble on for for God knows how long. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm always happy to, to chat with folks about anthropology and about the research and, you know, just to find as many different ways as I can to, you know, to put information out in the public about things that I think are, are, are interesting and, and important. You know, in terms of how I got into this field, I definitely am of the, the Indiana Jones, you know, generation where I've become really fascinated with archaeology, kind of initially probably through through those films, but also through a very early visit to the ancient uh, archaeological site of of Teotihuacan in, in central Mexico. And so I went to, to to Mexico City to see that site when I was probably about seven or eight. And I remember at the time just really being awestruck by the pyramids and the kind of monumentality of that of that site, and not really sure what it was, but but knowing that I wanted to kind of be a part of that. I wanted to understand history and I wanted to understand, you know, who had come before me and who were the people that had been responsible for this kind of amazing architectural sort of feat. And um, I was just always kind of interested in archaeology As, a, as a, in, in junior high school. I went into high school and I was a pretty terrible high school student, uh, or at least off and on. You know, I just always distracted or wasn't that interested in some of the topics. But I ended up taking a, an art history course with a guy named Rick Vandruff, who immediately recognized that, that I was interested in certain things like archaeology. And he really was the person who cultivated my interests and just started helping me to focus on on ancient art history and the connections to archaeology, and he was probably the first person that that told me that I could make a career out of out of archaeology. And so he kind of set me on that path. And I went to college, was really ready to get started to study anthropology, to study archaeology, you know, to kind of be Indiana Jones, and then realize that number one, I had been lied to about what archaeology was actually like, uh, and two. <laughs> It was presented to me. More importantly, much of the archaeology that I was exposed to early on was incredibly boring. Even I would say, just in general, my introduction to anthropology was either really boring or really problematic. And um, you know, I come from an era of students where people were still showing the kind of grainy footage of naked. You know, brown skin, dark skin people from from far from from far off places, um, and pitching that as like this is what anthropology is, and so I was really turned off by that initially, just because I felt like, well, this isn't what I really signed up for, and I'm not connecting with this, and it, and I find it to be to really really problematic. And then I kept taking classes though because I didn't know what else to do. I didn't have a, any other kind of job skills, and I wasn't even sure what what job skills I had to help to help me become a an anthropologist, other than the fact that I was really good at hanging out with people. Um, I I had traveled quite a bit because I was uh, an army brat. So I'd been around the world a lot and always had been the, the kind of odd person out. So I had a skill set related to trying to connect with people from different backgrounds. But it wasn't until I, I took a class called the Anthropology of LA, where I was asked to go out into the world and do ethnography in my own com- kind of communities, where that really got me excited about the discipline and, and seeing the potential for um, for the work. And but I continued to, to study archaeology, and you know, eventually ended up pursuing archaeological work in Mexico, and then going on later to do a, a dissertation in ancient Mesoamerica. Which by the time I finished that, I had then decided to jump ship and, and to go back to thinking about contem- contemporary cultural issues.
4: Yeah. So what was it exactly that made you, so you finish a PhD, which first of all, I mean, that's a, that's a big uh, commitment. And then to come out of it and realize that you don't like what, what you're doing, what, what was that process like? You know, I felt
2: like I was spending a lot of time asking questions that were so esoteric and that, you know, that's, a handful of people in the world were, were really concerned about and it just felt like like my time was better served doing other stuff and along the way as i was doing the archaeological work you know i got to know a lot of local work people women and men who were ditch, ditch diggers on these excavations in mexico working class folks who had had immigration experience in the arizona desert or in the united states or people who were getting ready to migrate and i just got much more much more interested kind of in their perspectives than the stuff was coming out of the ground. And I think part of what happened too is that you know I had been trained in this very traditional way which I hope hopefully we're not doing much of this anymore. I think we still are in, in some places but but it, it was a a type of archaeology that didn't really consider the kind of local community perspective, you know the local community was a community that you were using to get your data. Occasionally, maybe you'll give a talk, but that was kind of the extent of the commitment to these, to these communities. I think if I had been exposed to these more kind of like indigenous approaches to archaeology, community-based archaeological research, that sort of stuff, I probably would have stuck with it. But I be, had become so disillusioned with the way in which I had been trained and the disconnect from kind of living people that I decided to jump ship completely you know, I love archaeology. I, I feel like I, I I come back to it in, in different kinds of ways, um, and I'm thankful for that for that training. But I had really hit a point where it just felt like I was spending all this time looking at stone tools and there was a lot of stuff going on in the world that, that felt more important at, at the time and, and still does. I mean, I, I do think studying stone tools is important. I think archaeology is a, is a crucial, crucial um, field of research. I just prefer the, the types of archaeology now that's more, that's, that's more interactive. That's more, that's more sensitive to community issues, especially, you know, things like an indigenous issues. You know, I, I was, I, I came very much from an, from an old school kind of background that that sort of soured me on that approach. And for, for sure now, you know, I have no, um, I have no patience for that type of archaeology anymore. I mean, the first thing I ask with, mm-hmm. with, with that type of work is, okay, well, what does the community say? How are you involved with folks? You know, um, how are you giving back? How are you empowering these communities to um, to take ownership of their archaeological heritage? But that was for sure. That was uh, uh, such a far, far away thing from my, from what I had been trained to kind of be, be, be thinking about ar- archaeological research.
4: Yeah. So, okay. Thinking about that, I'm I'm really curious about what those conversations were like with the people that you were working with from the local community when you were doing those excavations. I mean, did they find the excavations relevant at all to to, to their lives, or was it like you're saying that this was kind of unimportant compared to what they felt like was happening with migrations and things like that?
2: You know, in in, in Mexico, I think the relationship that that folks have to the archaeological heritage it's just it's it's kind of context dependent you know when i worked in in more kind of indigenous communities the archaeology was 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 of great importance for all kinds of reasons. When I was working, kind of with more working class, you know, uh, uh, Mexicans, people who have an indigenous ancestry but don't identify as indigenous, you know, the archaeology was just something that was kind of paying the bills, and they were interested in it a little bit, but not to the extent of you know they wanted to become archaeologists. They wanted to you know take ownership of a of a local kind of museum, um, and I think part of it is just because those folks weren't seeing you know like indigenous communities in Mexico. Especially like in the in the Maya area, they've been able to capitalize on things like the tourism industry and to be able to both preserve their archaeological heritage while at the same time be able to to, to make a living from it. And many of the places that I worked just did not have that infrastructure for that. So the archaeology was this kind of very foreign thing that paid a paid a wage, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the community wasn't seeing a, a whole lot of um, of other kinds of benefits from um, from this work, unfortunately.
4: Right. And we talked about that more in episode 26. We talked about archaeology outreach in Maya communities in the Yucatan. So if you're interested in, in hearing more about indigenous Maya experiences with the ar- archaeology from this podcast, check out episode 26. Moving forward. So you mentioned that you were interested more in these contemporary issues. So how did you get to this particular issue that you're working on?
2: I was working in Mexico as an archaeologist, I was talking to all kinds of folks who had had immigration experiences, and their stories were really inspiring to me and, and also really depressing. Um, And I, you know, hearing about people almost dying in the desert and that kind of stuff. And it made me realize that I knew very little about immigration, despite the fact that I thought that, that I knew quite a bit. I had grown up in South Texas along the US-Mexico border. I had, grew up with lots of family members who were undocumented. I had spent a lot of time in Mexico, kind of moving back and forth. But I realized that I, I still did not know much about this issue. And so those guys just really kind of inspired me to to then take my research skills, you know, in this case, archaeology, and um, my growing interest in ethnography, and to see if I could use those skills to do something that felt much more kind of socially relevant. But it was a total shot in the dark. I basically finished my dissertation. I went on the job market and I, w- I was applying for jobs. I had had 10 years of archaeological experience working in Mexico and other places. I had been publishing stuff on you know, stone tools and ancient salt production and that kind of stuff. And then I, I wrote in these cover letters, I'm not doing that anymore. All of a sudden now I'm going to start working on immigration issues. And thankfully things kind of worked out, but it was a long and, and at times kind of painful process to kind of reinvent myself as some new kind of researcher. Um, and I think if I had done it a year later, you know, the market crashed the year after I went on the job market in 2007. And I think that if that had happened in 2008, I probably, I don't know what I would have ended up doing because I was, you know, I was applying, I applied for like 75 jobs my first year out. I got 74 rejections and one interview and the, um, The one interview was the the job that allowed me a couple of years to to reinvent myself and to think about the relationship between ethnography and and archaeology within the context of immigration.
4: As as regular listeners will know, I'm actually an ethnographer by training. I work in the cultural resource management field, but I'm not an an archaeologist, although my husband and pretty much everybody else around me is, is archaeologists or are archaeologists, I should say. Yeah. So I, I guess there's two places that I want to go next. The first one is how did you take this interest? Okay. So you knew you wanted to work on, uh, undocumented immigration and use archaeology and ethnography to look at this current issue. But I mean, there wasn't, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of guidance on how to do something like that or how to even approach something like that. So how did you form your methodology? How did you shape that study?
2: You know, like most things in my life, I just made it up as I, as, as I went. You know, I, I've <laughs> yeah. never had a good plan of beyond like two week window. And, you know, with this stuff, I had just I had gotten interested in immigration and I had started to see that migrants were leaving stuff in the Arizona desert, you know, that there there was this archaeological record. And so I just went down to Arizona, had someone show me around, show me this stuff. And then I just started thinking, okay, if I think about this as as archaeology, what would be the methods that I would want to use? You know, survey, artifact collection, mapping, that kind of stuff. And I just took the skills that I had been using on ancient stone tools and just started applying them to the things that I was seeing on the ground. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a blueprint really for that, other than the the Tucson garbage project, which even that was only helpful to a certain extent. I mean, this this was a just a, a lot of experimenting and saying, okay, can we do this? What happens if I take traditional archaeological methods and put them into this current and then this contemporary context? Can I say something interesting? And that's what we just started doing, experimenting with different different approaches, and then saying, okay, I've got this archaeological data. How do I connect it to the to the ethnographic data? And I've spent the last kind of ten years you know, experimenting with different ways of, of bringing these things together, whether it's the archaeological data or the forensic data or the ethnographic, just finding different ways to, to, to pull the stuff together, see if it works together. If it complements one another, that's great. If it contradicts, that's also really interesting. And so trying to accept failure as a, as a moment of growth and to rethink a kind of approach, but just pretty much made it up as I went the whole time. And I mean, I, I think I'm still doing that um, with, the, with all these other kinds of projects. But it keeps me. I think it keeps me fresh, and keeps me really worried about things. Which I think when I'm when I'm worried and stressing out about a project or an idea, that's when I feel like I'm doing the best kind of work. When I'm doing the most due diligence. When I'm um, when I'm thinking long and hard about the ramifications of the work. Typically is when I'm when I'm not sure what I'm doing, and so I like that kind of uh, not having a safety net to know whether or not the stuff is going to succeed or
4: not. Yeah, I mean, I feel like to a large extent we're all doing that, right? I mean, you have kind of your your methods that you learn in school or that you learn through experience, but you're always figuring out how they piece together with whatever project you're working on. And, and if you're not continually questioning that, then you're probably not really giving it all it deserves or, or moving the field forward. That's for Yeah. I mean, I
2: think for me, it's, it's all about an organic approach. Does it make sense? Does it feel right? Then keep doing it. And then when you fail, take stock and go, okay, why did it fail? What was it doing wrong? What could I have done better? And then how do I, how do I move
0: forward?
4: okay well on that note we're already at our first break (laughs) we will be back here in a moment
0: everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time
3: off your first three months or go to zencastr.com com and use the code HEVO, H-E-V-O.
0: Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time.
4: Going off of that last conversation that we were just having, I'm, I'm really curious if you could paint a little bit of a picture for our listeners of what, what that all looks like on the ground. So what does the archaeology look like on the ground? What does the ethnography look like on the ground? And then getting into the forensic portion that you mentioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think depending on the day of the week that you catch me, I'm either an ethnographer, an archaeologist, a forensic scientist, a photographer, exhibition curator. Every day is a, b- a bit different for us, uh, as, and and the f- the field work. I mean, so like the work in Arizona or the work in southern Mexico. It could be that I spend a day hiking out in the desert, collecting the objects that migrants have left behind, recording the location of sites where people have been sleeping or camping or changing their clothes. Um, so using a handheld GPS to, to, to document sites, maybe photographing and map, mapping a, a site, occasionally collecting materials and, and curating them like we would any typical archaeological assemblage. That, that could be a day. Another day could be spending, spending time in a migrant shelter with people who have just been deported or who are getting ready to migrate, conducting interviews with them, doing life history uh, interviews, giving them cameras so that they can photograph their own experiences either in Mexico or on the migrant trail. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the kind of hanging out that ethnographers do, that's a big part of the work. Um, or it could be the forensic stuff where for, for several years we've been trying to understand what happens to the bodies of migrants who die in the Arizona desert uh, through different forensic experiments using the, the bodies of, um, of pigs, which are the closest uh, proxy for the human body that we have available because of the similar organ distribution, weight, skin type. Um, we've been documenting how, how the bodies of pigs decompose in different contexts over the years to get a sense of how quickly do humans decompose, uh, what, are the, what are the different types of, of, of things that impact the body, whether it's scavenging animals or environmental conditions, and how do these conditions then impact our ability to, to locate remains and to identify uh, people. So depending on, you know, on, the, on the, the project or the types of questions that we're asking, I could be doing a, a whole range of different things. Um, so some of it, and I think some of it looks very traditionally archaeological. I mean, I've run archaeological field schools in the past. I've run ethnographic field schools in the past that either do those things in isolation or or really combine those things.
4: Yeah. And the as far as the, the part of the pigs decomposing, if you go to Radiolab, it'll be in the show notes. They do a border trilogy and they really get into detail on a lot of how exactly they did that part of the study. So I won't go into that. There, but you should definitely listen. It's a it's a really really fascinating um, set of three episodes. I just listened to it with my husband on the on a drive back from New Mexico, and I mean, again, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, so right again, also along the U.S. Mexico border, and I did a lot of um, you know I I took anthropology classes at the the University of Arizona. A lot of them were specifically. Focused on Mexico or the the US borderlands, and it's amazing how much there still is to learn. That those three episodes, I I learned a huge amount, and I I thought before that I I already knew a, a lot about the the border situation, but it, it was definitely very interesting. And you should all go check that out. It's it'll be in the show notes. What I do, I mean, again, I'm an ethnographer, so naturally, I'm really curious to hear more about that aspect, and then also. Tying into that, there's about like 40 or 50 just initial ethics considerations that come to my mind, and I'm sure that's an ongoing challenge that you face. So I'd be really curious to hear some of the types of ethical issues that you've faced and, and how you've addressed them as as the study is, has progressed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you're not worried about ethics, then you're you're not doing a very good job. as an ethnographer. And, you know, the ethical challenges. I mean, I I work with work with communities that are incredibly vulnerable, highly exploitable. You know, my job is to make sure that that I am representing them as they want to be seen. My job, I think, is to constantly be checking in with them about these are the types of things I'm writing about. These are the types of things that I'm that I'm interested in understanding. And I need help to do that. You know, the difference, I think, from like my work and the work of journalists who study immigration issues is that I'm fully committed to the people that I work with. And I try to develop, you know, very long term um, sorts of relationships. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's a it's a constant struggle, but it's everything from represent representation, the use of photography, photography what to reveal, what not to reveal. I mean, it's, a, it's an evolving struggle. And I always, I mean, I joke that as long as I don't sleep well at night because I'm worrying about these things, that's how I know that I'm, that I'm really doing a, a good job. And, and I would hope, like in my book, you know, people are, are given a lot of space to tell their own stories. I, I try to give as much page space to people's exact words. And so rather than paraphrasing or retelling someone else's story to say, okay, here are dozens of pages. Of this person telling their their experiences directly to the reader, and I think for me that's a really important thing: is to how do I empower folks to um, to take ownership of these stories that I unfor- that I am the translator for, or I am the kind of um, the, the moderator. You know, I control the the editing at the end of the day, and I have to be aware of that. But at the same time, trying to figure out then how do I how do I edit or moderate, and at the same time allow people space to be present to be visible and to be heard. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I've tried to do that in a whole bunch of different ways. And, um, you know, whether that's through the, Direct excerpts from interviews, whether that's having people take their own pictures of their own experiences, you know, giving feedback on on, on different kinds of elements of the project. Um, but it's it's constantly checking in with the communities that I work with, so that they know what I'm doing, and that um, and that I feel really good that they're that they're supportive of of the work.
4: Right. And one of the first things that came to mind that we'll we'll get to later in this this uh, conversation is your exhibit. And I, I was noticing, for example, that the exhibit is going to be shown in Nogales Sonora and you know my first response is like what kind of what kind of trauma is this invoking for for local people having you know this kind of exhibit that that again we'll talk about here in a little bit um that really points out the inhumanity of what's happening Um, But on the other hand, you know, without the exhibit, there's also this erasure, you know, like people feeling like their story is not being heard. They're not being represented. um, They're not being humanized. So it's it's really tricky. That was that was one of the first ethics considerations that came to my mind. How do you um, walk that line between trauma, you know, like possibly trauma, you know, re-traumatizing people basically, or I don't even, I don't even know how to phrase this, but I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll let you, you take it from there.
2: You know, my, my sense with this work is that migrants want to be seen. I mean, mm-hmm. they want to be visible. They want to be heard and they want the public to understand that they suffer greatly, you know? And so of course there's always a the worry about uh, traumatizing people or re-traumatizing them. But at the same time, you know, I've never had someone tell me they didn't want their story to be told. I've never had someone tell me that that they didn't want the public to know just how brutal the experiences are. I mean, and if you look at my, my first book, I mean, there's pictures in, in the book of a woman, a 31-year-old woman from Ecuador named, named Maricela Zaguipuyas, whose body we found in, in 2012. And we only show her picture because her family was like, you need to show this picture. People need to see what happened to her and understand that this is not a made-up story. That people die every day, and of course, it's traumatizing for the family. But at the same time, they want her story to be heard. And I think that's you know that's the thing with, with this um, with this exhibition that we're doing, Hostile Terrain '94, which is essentially a collaborative exhibition with over a hundred hundred communities around the globe, where we ask people to come together for a few days and to fill out toe tags for three thousand plus. People who have lost their lives while crossing the Arizona-Mexico border since since 2000, we ask them to, to bear witness to this suffering by by writing down the names of the dead and the and the details of what happened to them, and then mounting them on this giant wall um, in the exact location where those people were found, so that so that both they can bear witness and so that other people can bear witness. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. It, it doesn't. It's not something that's done lightly. And obviously, it's something that comes with a lot of emotional baggage. But I think for me. And and the, and the feedback that we've gotten from folks is that despite the pain that is caused by making this thing and by being a part of the construction of this exhibition, at the end of the day, it's important to recognize it. That, that if we don't do this, people will forget. People don't know. You know, I think the migrant communities really want to be empowered to show people. Look, this is what we're telling you. Our lives are like. This is um. These are the experiences that we're having. And and many people on on in these exhibitions on these these wall of toe tags. Don't have names, aren't, aren't identified. Their families are still wondering what, what happened to them. And, and for me, this exhibition is an attempt to to make them visible and to at least temporarily have them be recognized as a human being who lost their lives. And you know, obviously, that's a that's a a hard thing to to be a part of and to see. And it's emotionally you know very very taxing. But I think we live in a moment where. If we don't do this, you know, the the counter-narrative of that migrants are horrible people, that they're evil, they're coming here to destroy this country, or that they don't even exist, I think that 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 narrative is more dangerous than this one. And so we've got to find any kind of way to, to counter the demonization of migrants or the erasure of migrants. And unfortunately, a lot of people have died because of immigration policies. And, and I don't want people to forget that. And I don't think many of the migrants want people to forget. They want people to know what has happened to them. Um, so, I mean, but it, it's risky. I mean, it is a, it is a risky endeavor, but, but, you know, we work in partnership with all these different host communities to make sure that everybody that's involved is being involved in a, in a healthy way and that this is not, that they're not going to walk away feeling worse about it, but hopefully they'll walk away with, with you know, may, maybe feeling empowered or maybe feeling like recognized for just a moment in time.
4: Yeah, and this is—it's kind of interesting timing. I know this this episode won't come out for a little bit, but with everything that's happening right now, you—you you mentioned um, the power of photography of human remains, and and right now that is very much in the news. And also with the 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 conversation around the the detention camps.
2: You know, I think I mean right now the the photo that's been circulating of, of this. 24-year-old Salvadoran father right. and his, his two-year-old daughter, you know, this th- horrific image is circulating. And people are up in arms and they're, you know, I can't believe this is going on kind of thing. And and my response is like, number one, you know, we shouldn't be circulating the images, of the, the image of this person's body. I and mean, mm-hmm. this is traumatizing right. for the family. Nobody's given permission for this image to show. We, rec- I know people want to raise awareness about this issue. I don't necessarily think that that photo is the way to do it. And, you know, even just this week, I've been trying to counter that and saying, look, there aren't enough photographs in the world to convey the pain and suffering that current immigration border policies have inflicted upon people. But if you need an image to circulate to um, to help you understand the scale of this of this of this issue, you know, use this one. And I've been circulating an image of Southern Arizona that shows 30, 3,100 red dots representing you know thousands of people who have died um, in the region since two thousand. I think that the go-to it could be really easy to just say here's a picture of a dead body. Let me show it to you, shock you, and and maybe that'll raise awareness about stuff. But I don't think that that's really effective. And obviously, we we circulate the images of the dead in all kinds of ways for all kinds of reasons. But then people people kind of lose interest or they become desensitized to this issue. And and I think it's it's kind of my job as an anthropologist. To provide more nuance to these types of issues, and it's not just about shock and awe, but it's about educating, and it's about having something stick with people. Because I'm sure that many of the people who see this image of this of this poor person and his and his daughter, they're not going to remember this in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, that'll it'll be replaced by some image of a of a of a dead child from Syria or from you know the Mediterranean. We, we cycle through those images so quickly, and uh, we've got to find smarter and more sensitive ways to enlighten the, the, the public um, but that's you know that's another, another issue you know and I work I work quite a bit with photography and it's always trying to figure out you know what what is the right image to use and, and when do you when do you pull back and thankfully you know I'm not a journalist I don't have to get the shot um, I can put the camera down for as long as I want I don't have to rely on one image to tell to tell a story you know the images are part of, of this much larger data set. Whether it's the ethnography, the archaeology, or the forensic science, and so it allows, I think, for more nuance uh, in in storytelling and more sensitivity. But unfortunately, you know, with, with migrants, you know, it's easy. Everybody's looking for that shot of the the dead or the sad migrant. Unfortunately, because we consume it as 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 readers of newspapers and as um, people who consume, you know, the daily news cycle. But a lot of times, I think those things are just doing more harm than good. Although we, we, we currently live in a moment where the brutalization that migrants are experiencing, I think it has to be seen in some in some sense, at least in terms of the kids in detention centers and that kind of stuff, because it's been going on for far too long and nobody's been paying attention to it.
4: Well, and I, I think that even, you know, for example, again, I grew up in Tucson. It was not, there was always the annual body count of the desert, you know, like that was always news, but definitely it wasn't until later in life that I realized how much deeper all of it goes? That you know, it's not just literally crossing the desert that people are hugely vulnerable for for long periods before they even get to the border. I, I remember in college there was um, an obscene statistic about the the number of sexual assaults that uh, that migrants um, face in their journey north, and and it was just one of those statistics that was just truly really shocking the, the number of, of women especially but also men who face sexual assaults at some point during their their migration it's you know right up there with the the number of, of indigenous women that, that face the same thing and just to see the 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 brutality and and the lack of <laughs> uh, response or understanding or movement on that is is pretty shocking once you once you kind of get, more of a, a full picture of what's happening. So I guess, and we're about to to hit another break here. But looking at all of that, what is it? Is there something that people can do to help these issues, like like the the detention camp issue? Is there something that people can do more in their their daily lives to help address these these situations?
2: You know, they can they can support nonprofits like the Colibri Center for Human Rights, which works to reunite family members with the remains of their loved ones and it helps to identify bodies in, recovered in Arizona that are currently in the in the morgue. You know, there's great organizations that people can donate to. But also, I think just being educated, you know, learning more about this issue, reading up on this stuff, especially the fact that we're coming up on a on an election cycle And being able to call out the bullshit that politicians are going to be spewing about immigration. You know, um, what does immigration reform look like? Right. Why are people migrating? What does Latin America look like? Why is Honduras the way that it is? I think just really being aware of those things can um, can help inform people's lives in all kinds of ways, you know, because not everybody's going to be able to go down and, and protest or volunteer their time. But I think just being educated and being able to share that knowledge with others is a really important step. And then from there, you know, once you kind of have a better sense of the issue uh, and, the, and the deep history of it, then maybe you can figure out, okay, where's my my time kind of best spent? Is it raising money? Is it volunteering my time? Is it educating? You know, it's, it, but I think education really is, a, is the first kind of starting point because you can donate money one one time and then forget about this issue and, and that money might go to help a person once, but I think in general, we as a society just need to be much smarter about this stuff um, so that we can identify when we're being lied to when um, you know when, when things are happening that that are not right that are not that are not just um, you know but we have to have the, the, the educational background to to be able to, to see that stuff.
4: okay. well on that note, we are going into our second break. We'll be
0: right back.
4: Okay, so something that you were just talking about there, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about. So you mentioned that people can volunteer their time. And one thing I'm curious about is, you know, there's the the situation that I'm not sure a lot of people have heard about, but with, um, I believe it's no more deaths in Tucson, Correct? That there's
2: the Scott Warren case.
4: Yes, exactly, the Scott Warren case facing charges for for volunteering to To help um, migrants cross in the desert, I believe he was bringing water. Correct. Yep. Okay.
2: Well, we're in a moment right where humanitarian aid is becoming criminalized. Right, where we've got laws that people find unjust, and to try to alleviate the pain associated with these unjust laws, right, people are being are being prosecuted. There's a war being waged against people who find some of these laws unjust, and we're in an important kind of historical moment where we as a, society, as a society have to decide whether or not we're going to follow the law just because it's the law or whether we're going to argue for for the changing of laws because we find them to be unjust. And I, I think that people are doing a lot of soul searching right now and figuring out, well, how if I care deeply about this issue, how far am I willing to go to fight for this thing? You know, it's a scary time. We're seeing a lot of horrible things happening to people and folks who don't, Think this stuff is just, are being put into this position of like, well, what do I do? Do I risk my own life? Do I risk my own kind of well being? Because this thing is, um, I find this thing to be unjust or not. I think many Americans are, are asking themselves right now, what are they going to do about this? And um, it's tough. I mean, it really is, it really is tough um, because I, I do think that there are a lot of laws in place that are so unjust and yet. Many people will blindly follow them because they're the law. And you get this argument a lot from like anti-immigrant folks. People will say, well, these people in Arizona, they're dead because they broke the law. The law is the law, it's that simple. And I would argue that nothing is that simple. And I don't care, you know just because it's a law does not mean that it's, that it's right. And we could think about all of the legal discrimination that has been a part of American history since its founding, whether it's who gets to vote who gets to get married, you, you know, who has rights and who doesn't. We see that laws over time, you know, they're overturned because they're unjust. And I think we're in a moment right now where we're seeing many of these immigration laws that are happening um, as being shown for, for the horrible things that they actually are. And it's just, it, but people are, are really being asked to then um, take a side. And yeah, you got to figure out what, what side of history do, do we want to be on? Because we know that these things are not going to stay like this forever. They can't. And I don't want to look back in 20 years and tell my kids, you know, when this stuff was going down, I just said, well, fuck it, law's a law, you know, right. uh, that's if you see injustice in the world, I think it's your responsibility as a human being to to speak up about it and to figure out how best you can be involved in in helping to ensure as far as I'm concerned, helping to ensure equal rights for everyone.
4: Well, I guess, first of all, is that's how you felt with you and yourself and your students? Have you felt like you've had to put yourself a little bit against, not against the law, but you know what I mean? Like put yourself in a in a little bit of a, a gray area or a less safe um, situation than you would like to be in, in order to do this kind of work. And second of all, talking about the the law versus justice and what's right. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of... For example, let's let's look at the Border Patrol. I mean, in my lifetime, when I was growing up in Tucson, the Border Patrol was not... It wasn't that noticeable when I was a kid. Now, it's very noticeable. And it's it's basically, it's an industry. So at some point, you know, you can't just... Take away the border patrol or, or reduce it in force without creating another economic issue. So at some point, the system is just set up in a way that I don't. I'm not even sure if there is a way out or a way forward. I'm not sure what that would look like. Do you have any any thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I think we waste a lot of among, a lot of American taxpayer dollars on on border security issues that are fabricated. I think that you know the, the border patrol is a bloated organization that. Is very good at justifying expenditures while at the same time not being accountable, um, being very difficult to evaluate. And we have to keep in mind that a lot of people are heavily invested in, in the border industrial complex. So building more detention centers, hiring more agents, all that kind of stuff. I mean, people profit from that. And I think it's, the, it's profits that really drive this whole thing. And the anxieties we have about immigration are just a smokescreen um, to allow people to, to profit from this thing. And I, I I think the system is over is bloated. I mean, it's it, we just keep putting more money into it. I mean, this whole thing about we're going to build this wall, right? How much money is that going to cost? And we know that we know that <laughs> right. it it would have literally no effect on anything. Yet right. people are behind it because they, they see that it's a it's a way to generate profits. I mean, all people thinking about right. the detention centers. It's not just because America hates migrants. It's not just because we're we're a bunch of hypocrites and because we demonize Latinos. Those are that is an issue. Those are issues. At the same time. Many people are making a lot of money off of detention centers, and that's what keeps right. the system running. And people need to understand that—that—that that, um, that it's about economics in so many ways, and and the immigration issue becomes a smokescreen to hide those to hide that. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I mean, you want to if you want to feel um, a little hopeless, I guess, listen to that that Lab episode or the series of them because it just lays out. Um, exactly exactly a lot of how kind of silly it all is or not silly i mean because obviously it's not funny but um the the border patrol efforts and how basically i feel like a lot of what it does is yeah like you're saying justify itself going back to your work have there been any like particular highlights of your efforts through the years any um any moments that were particularly like you felt like successful or creative or effective? Well, you know, I think
2: the work is fulfilling no matter what, because it allows me to to work with amazing students. Um, I think that I've worked with hundreds of students over the years in different ways in the field and, um, and in the lab. And I'm just, I'm proud of those relationships and I'm proud of the many students that I've been able to mentor and the, and the students that I've learned a great deal from. I'm really proud of the relationships that we have developed with with, with migrants, with people who have, who have shared their stories with us and allowed us to, to tell their stories to the public, I think for me, that's been really inspiring. You know, obviously, there's, there's lots of stories that I've been involved with that, that don't have happy endings that have been really depressing. But at the same time, I'm, I'm always grateful, at least, though, that, 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 that the folks who have lost their lives in this, in this horrific tragedy, I've been able to facilitate in some small way the telling of their stories so that they're not forgotten. And so that if one more person knows the name of Maricela Zaguipuyas or her 15-year-old cousin who went missing in um, a year after her, uh, Jose Takudi, if one person knows about their story, for me, that's a, that's a, that's a, a small victory. You know, it, it's hard to stay motivated. I think right now in this kind of Trump era, the world is on fire, but in a really visible way. And it's hard to stay kind of positive, but I have to remind myself and remind others that it's always been like this. This was happening under Clinton. This was happening under Obama. Trump is just the kind of most recent person. He's the most vocal about it and the one who's not doing a very good job of hiding it. Kind of he's embracing the the horribleness, but it's been happening for a really long time. But I, I try to use this current moment where everybody we're all feeling really just life is hard right now. It's hard to be an American right now and imagine how hard it must be to be a migrant right now. Um, I try to use this moment though, to inspire the work more to say, okay, well now more than ever is when you can't give up now more than ever is when you have to be motivated to keep doing this work, to keep raising awareness, to keep doing the research because it's needed. And I would say if I, maybe one of my more proud moments is for many years, I had been making the argument that the things that migrants leave behind in the desert is part of American history is part of America's shared immigration story. It, it might be unpopular right now in this, in this current political moment, but the things that are left left in the Arizona desert are as equally valuable as the things people have left in places like Ellis Island. It's, it's part of our shared history, and we have mm-hmm. to understand that. And people used to laugh at me. I mean, I get yeah. laughed at a lot in the beginning. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm someone who goes around and picks up migrant trash in the desert, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we made that argument for a long time that that it's not trash, that it's cultural patrimony. It needs to be respected. It needs to be conserved. It needs to be understood. And I think the moment where I really felt like I'd finally made that point was when the Smithsonian took about Hundred and ten objects from our collection for permanent um, um, to add to the permanent collection, and you can you can go right now wow. to the American History Museum, and you can see numerous objects from from the Arizona Desert that we've collected that are on permanent display in an, in an exhibition called One Nation, Many Voices. And I think for us, um, that was a real crucial moment of recognition, and like, look, we keep fighting this fight, and we want we want this experience of of these immigrants to be to be respected. And that for us was a really, um, was an important moment when, when this institution, this American institution recognized um, the the value in, um, in these materials.
4: Okay. So where, is there like a a place that you'd like to go next with all of this? I mean, I know that it's, it's constantly changing and and responsive to what's happening, but is there something that you're excited about of, of where you want to take all of this next?
2: Well, you know, my life is consumed right now by this Global exhibition we're doing in 2020, so that's for the next kind of probably 16 months. That's all I'm really doing. So we're not doing a lot of field work right now. I'm also trying to finish a book that's about smugglers and photography. Um, so that's kind of the next the next book project. But I don't know what's going to come after that. Um, I don't have a an active field project at the moment. Um, so I'm I'm just kind of excited to see what happens in 2020, how the exhibition goes, make some get some traction on this book, and then and then figure out you know, where in the world do I want to be next? Or what, what's the kind of pressing question that I think I can best address. Um, but, I, but I like, I like this openness. I mean, I feel like my life for the next two years, two and a half years is probably set. Um, I've got lots of things to finish up. But then after that, uh, it's kind of open. And so like everything else, you know, I'm going to just kind of organically see where the day takes me and, and hopefully I'll land on, on both feet.
4: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Have you ever? Okay, sorry. Just side note. Have you ever done any work looking at like the the situ the migration situation in Europe versus the U.S. Mexico border or inter or intra continent migration, like to um, places like Argentina from other places in South America? Just just curious personally.
2: You know, I've spent some time in the Mediterranean in in Lampedusa, and we'll do. I think we're doing ten exhibitions in 2020. In the, um, we're doing one in Greece. We're doing we're doing two in Italy. We're doing three or four in Germany. So we've got all these exhibitions that are about Arizona, but that are in Europe um, as an attempt to connect it to to the Mediterranean um, issue. And so that's definitely something that we're that we're excited about is drawing these parallels and helping people to understand that we live in this kind of in a global. We live in a moment now where where migration is a global crisis, and it's affecting everybody all over the all over the place. And we need to we need to see the parallels of what's happening on the U.S. Mexico border, along the Guatemala Mexico border, along the Venezuela border with Argentina, and elsewhere the Mediterranean. And so, um, yeah, we're really always trying to think more 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 broadly um, in this work, and, and potentially a, a next project could take us to a place like Europe to start thinking about this issue.
4: Yeah, yeah, that'd be fascinating. Okay. So here to close out, could you tell everyone about your first book? Give us some more some more of a background for people that might want to check it out?
2: Yeah, the first my my first book is called The Land of Open Graves, and it is about the way in which the Arizona Desert has been used by the federal government, by the American federal government, as a way to deter migrants from from migrating. Basically, we have tried to funnel them towards places like the Sonora Desert, where they have to walk upwards of 50 miles to get into the United States as a way to slow them down. And um, the book revolves around a, po- a policy called Prevention Through Deterrence, which relies heavily on nature um, as a obstacle to movement. And it has, killed, it has knowingly killed thousands of people. It has knowingly put millions of people in harm's way. And so the book really follows the development of this policy and its impacts on people's lives. And so it follows three different sets of stories. There's two men that I met in a migrant shelter in Mexico um, that I call Memo and Lucho. The first part of the book follows their journey through the desert, told through their eyes. The second part of the book is about... This woman Maricela from Ecuador whose, whose body we found in 2012 and about why she was there and the backstory to her life. And then the third part is about her, her 15-year-old cousin who, who migrates a year after she
4: does. And in addition to this book, um, which there'll be a link in the show notes for that as well, are there any other resources that you recommend for, for people wanting to learn more?
2: You know, people can go to our websites, undocumentedmigrationproject.com to learn about the overall project. They can go to jasonpatrickdeleon.com to learn about projects that like talk, talks and lectures that I'm doing, that kind of stuff, events associated with the, with the, with the project. And they can go to Hostile terrain 94 with number nine and four dot com. To learn about the, this global exhibition that we're launching next year. We've got about seven or eight prototypes that are happening this year all over the US and, um, and in Mexico and potentially Europe. And then in 2020, this exhibition will be in 110 locations in the United States, in Latin America, Canada, Europe, um, and hopefully, um, actually Australia, and hopefully Asia and Africa uh, as well.
4: Are you actually going to all of those places? No, thank, thankfully I that?
2: won't. I mean, I'll go to, I'll go to a, a small <laughs> subset of those.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay.
2: be a lot of, a lot of frequent flyer miles.
4: (laughs) Yeah. A lot of frequent flyer miles. Um, Any, any last things that you wanted to add that we didn't get to?
2: No, I think that's it. I mean, I think people should just get educated and, and hopefully, you know, if they go to our our websites, they can, they can read news stories and they can get more information um, about this issue.
4: Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you. Thank you yeah and especially great to show you know again this is normally we talk about uh indigenous archaeology in a very different context than this so this was great to to show that there's descendant or associated communities for for all different types of archaeology so really glad that we could have this conversation oh, it's been my pleasure thanks for listening to the heritage voices podcast You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica.com at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
3: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more.
0: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks...